If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Mark chapter 3, the gospel according to Mark chapter 3. This morning, we're going to be reading once again verses 7 to 19, looking at Jesus as he calls his disciples. He begins this new family of God. If you were not here last week, we looked at this family picture and we saw what makes the disciples any different from the crowd. And just very quickly, what we see is the disciples have a calling. There's lots of people around Jesus, but the disciples are the ones who were called by Christ into a relationship to be with him and to be on mission. So we see what they do and how they stand out from the crowd. Today, as we look at this group again, I want to really focus on who they are because that's what's really amazing. With all that in mind, let's read Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Almost in every home, when you walk in, maybe above the fireplace or in the front entrance, you're going to see a family photo. Now, in these family photos, it's not reality. We, we have pictures of our families that are picture perfect, right? Everyone's smiling. Everyone likes each other. We're all close. Sometimes our clothes are matching or we're at least in our best. We put the picture above the fireplace that we want people to see. We want people to look at and say, oh, what a beautiful family you have. That's such a sweet picture, right? Who puts up the worst picture of their family above the fireplace. The ones where the kids are pulling at each other's hair and pushing each other and calling each other's names and everybody's hair is messed up if they got hair, you know, everyone just looks busted. Who puts that picture up in their house? Interestingly, in the book of Mark, as, as Mark shows us this new family of God, that's the kind of picture he puts up. 
one of the themes you see in the book of Mark is how messed up the disciples are. They're not the cute kids in the photo. They're the kids scrapping with each other that you can't keep quiet, telling them just to smile for the camera. What is going on? What we're going to see as we look at these disciples more closely, brothers and sisters, is this. When you look at our family picture, Jesus gets all the credit. When you look at who we are as people and what we were like before Jesus brought us into the family, it is plain and obvious who gets the credit, who gets the praise. That's what Mark is driving at here in this section. And I want you to look at this family photo I want you to look at it closely. I want you to see yourself in it. And as we look at this family photo, I want to show you four groups who appear in the picture. Four groups in the family photo. The first one are the flawed leaders. Mark mentions them to us in verses 16 and 17. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Nicknames, sometimes they make sense. And then sometimes the biggest guy in the room is named Tiny, and it just doesn't add up. That's what's going on with Peter. His name, his nickname is The Rock. Based on what? One minute, he's walking on water. The next, he's sinking. One minute, he's in the garden, ready to fight, pulling out a sword. The very next minute, he's by the fire, ready to deny he even knows Jesus. This man is not the rock. But his nickname shows us, friends, what Jesus is going to make. He's going to appoint Peter to be. Jesus is going to make him the rock. Now, James and John's nickname, now that might be a closer match. That might make more sense. Their nickname is the Sons of Thunder, probably pointing to their loud, passionate, maybe even hot-tempered nature. Now, James was the first martyr of the church. John was the apostle of love. But what about early on? Luke 954 tells us that when a Samaritan village rejects Jesus, James and John say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? God, do you see these jerks? Let's just say a prayer real quick and and be done with them. Later in the book of Mark, they pull Jesus aside. He's trying to teach them what being a disciple is like, how to be childlike, how to be selfless. And they, they ask Jesus, can we have the best seats in heaven, please? This is the sons of thunder. And so the three biggest names, Peter, James, and John, this is, these are the top three draft picks of Jesus. The first names called. The best ones. What's Jesus doing? Why does he pick these guys to lead the way? He does it with intentionality because he knows when he changes the world with guys as flawed and jacked up as Peter, James, and John, he's the only one who's going to get praise. He's the only one who's going to get credit. 
As John MacArthur writes, the greatness of God's grace is seen in his choosing the undeserving to be his people and the unqualified to do his work. Do you ever feel like you're not good enough to be used by the Lord? Like maybe someone who's got more education, more qualifications, more skills, more traits, maybe they could be used by God to do something special. But you've got too many mistakes in your past, too many limitations to overcome. You're too small, you're too weak, you're not enough. Listen to what God says to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Listen, brothers and sisters, and I'm talking to those who belong to the family of God. Part of repenting and believing is believing what God can do through you. Is believing that God can use you. I don't know how many times I've heard from people who have been in the family of God for years, say that I can't do this for the Lord because I'm not capable. Because I don't have this skill. I don't have this talent. Brothers and sisters, remember who brought you into the family. It's not about you. The family photo is supposed to point us to Jesus. There's another group in the family photo. You probably missed them. Because this group is the forgotten others. The forgotten others. I'm just going to breeze through them really quickly. You can look at your text. First, there's Andrew. He introduces Peter. Shows up every now and then. But then fades out. There's Philip. Who, by the way, is not the Philip in the book of Acts. He introduces Nathaniel to Jesus. Other than that, nothing is known. There's Bartholomew, who's probably Nathaniel in the other list, but the list tell us nothing about him. Levi, the most well-known in the group, wrote the Gospel of Matthew, but in Acts chapter 1, he's waiting on the Holy Spirit, and after that, never mentioned again. Thomas, He was willing to die for Jesus, but you only know him as the doubter. Other than that, no further role. James, the son of Alphaeus, we only have questions. He could be Levi's brother because they're both sons of Alphaeus. His mother could be at the cross, but we don't know. Thaddeus is only mentioned in the list and never again. This is his spotlight. This is his time to shine. And Simon the Zealot is only known for his politics, probably an extremist, a nationalist, ready to fight. Otherwise, the Bible mentions nothing. You take this group, and we have more questions and legends than actual biblical knowledge. Let me ask you, if we asked everyone in this room to write down a list of the disciples, how many of this group could you name? Two, three, four? Think about it. This is eight guys of the twelve. Three quarters of Jesus' hand-picked family are totally forgotten. 
why does Jesus choose these guys if they're mostly going to fall through the cracks? He's got everybody in Israel around him. He can pick anybody he wants. And eight of the 12 people he picks are so normal, so mundane, so common that believers 2,000 years later who go to church every Sunday don't even know who they are. It's because, friends, Jesus knows there's only one name that needs to be remembered. There's only one name that's above every name. Jesus calls his disciples to die to self and live for his fame. Now, I just want you to think about that dynamic and what does that say about our Christian culture that's so fascinated with celebrities and popularity? Why do we need another book from Tim Tebow or the Duck Dynasties of the world? Why is our Christian conferences jam-packed with the most famous preachers in America, with the biggest churches in America? Why do we need the big name? It's because we think that that gives us some kind of credibility. The world's going to see that Tony Dungy's a believer and want to join in. Well, Kirk Cameron, my favorite sitcom star from the 80s, is a believer. I'm going to want to be a believer, too. We think that this gives Christianity some kind of cachet with the crowd. But 1 Corinthians 1, verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. This celebrity culture, brothers and sisters, is counter-kingdom. When Jesus, think about this, when Jesus sends the disciples out, I've I've thought about this so much. When Jesus sends the disciples out to preach the gospel, think about this. That means most people who hear of the gospel of the kingdom, they don't hear Jesus preach. Most people don't even get to hear Peter, James, and John. Imagine being the guy in Israel who goes to the Christian revival in town and you only get to hear Thaddeus preach. I've been in churches and places where people get up in the middle of the service and leave the room because it's not the senior pastor preaching. Because we need the name. Can I give you some encouragement? You're not ready for this. I promise you that. 300 years from now, No one will remember your name. Your own family won't even know you existed. You won't even be a footnote on your family tree. (laughs) And that only hurts, brothers and sisters, because we believe the dream and the hype that we could do something special, that we could be remembered. Your worth is not in how many people know your name. Your worth is if you're known by Christ. And if he remembers you. So brothers and sisters, live to make him famous. As some guy you don't remember once said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's the call of the family of God. And so we see the flawed leaders, we see the forgotten others, and then there's the fallen one. 
Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now, you remember this guy. You don't remember any of the good ones, most of them. But you remember this guy. His name is synonymous, even in in our culture, in the world, with betrayal. Even Jesus' hand-picked group, his top 12 picks, deals with scandal and corruption. How could that happen? How can that be? Judas shows us, brothers and sisters, that God accomplishes his work and his purposes even through failure. Tragedy doesn't slow him down. Mistakes don't get in his way. When Judas betrays Jesus in the garden, Satan thinks he's winning. Satan thinks he's stopping Jesus. But in reality, Judas is only doing what God wrote in the first place. Mark 14, verse 21, Jesus says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It's interesting in that verse you see both that God is sovereign over what Judas does and Judas is held responsible for it. Acts chapter 1 verse 16, looking back on things, Peter says, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Listen, our king holds all things together. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And all things includes the worst things. And so bring that home. When corruption strikes the church, when scandal hits, when things fall apart, when we are betrayed, has the enemy really won? God, brothers and sisters, is still on the throne. Jesus Christ is still going to stand in victory on the final day. And so when brothers and sisters, when men and women who have walked with us fall away, when they, when they go the way of Judas, it's an opportunity for us to remember, brothers and sisters, they were never the heroes of the story to begin with. Our family photo points to Christ. Our hope is in the king who never fails. Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. And until he fails you, and he cannot, he gets the credit. And so you look at this family photo, you see flawed, jacked up leaders. You see people who are so mundane, they're lost in history and forgotten. And you see a backstabber. And Jesus takes this group of people and forms the new family of God. That's the fourth group in this photo. This is the picture of the new family. 
the real importance in this list is not the names, but the number. Twice we are told he appointed the twelve. Jesus took these flawed and made them twelve. And that's important, it's significant. Even after Judas falls in Acts chapter 1, they have to appoint a new apostle because they must have twelve. Eleven will not work. They need twelve. Why? Twelve is not a significant number. There's only one place twelve shows up. It's the twelve tribes of Israel. The beginnings of the family of God in the Old Testament. And the reason they must have 12 is because what Jesus is doing here, he's sending a message. He's not calling any priests. He's not calling any scribes. He's not calling the traditional family of God. He's bringing this ragtag group of fallen, flawed men, and he's making the new family of God. This is the beginning of the new Israel, the new family. That's why in Luke chapter 22, verses 29 to 30, he tells this group of guys, I assigned you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And brothers, this is the good news of the gospel because you and I never belonged. We were on the outside looking in, and Jesus, through these men, opens the doors wide to anyone who would believe, from any tribe, any language. And he brings us into the family of God. And why does he do it? It's not because of us. You just look at the night he was betrayed. One is denying he even knows them. The rest, the forgotten others, are running around town away as far as fast as they can. One is intentionally bringing Jesus to the cross. He, he dies on the cross for these brothers and their sins and their flaws. And he, he's risen from the dead. He appears to his brothers. He, he shows them his, his new kingdom resurrection. And one of the brothers doubts him. And so the good news of the gospel is none of us come into the family room of God because of who we are. But in spite of our flaws, in spite of our mistakes, in spite of our rebellion and our betrayal, Jesus died for us and rose again so that he could bring us into the family. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul writes, For through him we both, Jews and Gentiles have access in one spirit to the Father. Let me ask you before I go any further, do you belong to the family of God? Do you have access to God through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for you and through his resurrection? You can be a part of the family today and you don't have to do anything to be in the family you just have to turn to the Lord Jesus and trust in him. And he will bring you in. Come to the Lord Jesus today. Sit at his feet. Be a part of the family of God. But family, let me ask you. Look at this family photo. What does it say? What does this group of 12 say to us? Well, in that passage in Ephesians that I just read, Paul talks about this family of God and what it's supposed to look like. 
Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 22, he says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles, these guys, and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus, the cornerstone, makes us family. He bonds us together, joins us together in spite of the flaws, even through the failures, from the greatest to the least. Brothers and sisters, listen, Jesus saves no individual. He takes the individual and he unites them, he binds them, he joins them with the body. It's the only way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, Paul writes, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. The only way to be in the family of God is to be in a family. That's why when the New Testament writes, you can't get away from it. It says things like, bear with one another. Forgive one another, prefer one another, outdo one another in showing honor, submit to one another, serve one another, love one another. Can you do any of that by yourself? And I want you to see that in a lot of those, you can't do them without sin involved. You can't forgive someone without flaws. You can't bear, one, bear with somebody who doesn't get on your nerves. You can't obey these commands without some rebellion and flaws to get past. It's part of the recipe. It's part of the plan. Look at the 12 Jesus chose. He never promises here on earth to make the perfect family. He never promises to put the perfect family picture above his fireplace. He doesn't want that picture. There's going to be disagreements and conflict and flat-out scandals. And listen, brothers and sisters, none of those give you an excuse to find a better way. The flaws in your leaders don't give you an excuse. The rebellion of your brothers and sisters don't give you an excuse. Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is committed to the church. The local church is his plan to proclaim his kingdom, his reign to the world. And so this flawed, jacked-up family is those who have a calling, who know their master has summoned them, 
It's those who have a relationship with the king and who have a mission, a superseding mission that overrides any other preference to come together and make the king known. That's the king's plan for his family. And he is committed to it all the way to the point of death. Now, brothers and sisters, if the king has made you a part of this family, the question for us is, how committed are you to the church? This is God's instrument. It's his chosen instrument to point people to the kingdom. It's his grace that brings us into this family. How committed are you to it? We just sang on Christ the solid rock I stand. We just read in the scripture that on that rock is built the church. You can't stand on the solid rock if you're not in the church. That's some sinking sand you're standing on. Let me ask you, has your commitment been more influenced by the flaws in the family or the faithfulness of your king? You need to commit to the church the way Christ committed to you. Some of us, we, ju- we are fine just visiting the living room and getting all the benefits of the family while refusing to be known as part of the family. Some of us are, are more than happy receiving what the church can give for decades, but won't sign the line won't commit to one another. I mean, it's ingrained in our culture. This isn't a place for mission. This isn't a place of calling. When we look for a church, how many of us are really just looking for a place I won't get hurt? A place where I agree with everything. A place maybe that's well-known in the community that's going to give me some credibility. A place where the people are just like me. And how many of us look for a church where I have a sense that the Lord is calling me personally to commit and serve and give my life for the mission of God? And when we think about leaving a church, same question applies. Brothers and sisters, when the world sees that, They don't see the power of God. They see a mirror reflection of their own lives. Ephesians 3 verse 10, Paul calls the church the manifold wisdom of God. It's the picture of God's sovereign wisdom and plan to the world. This, like the Acts 2 picture we read, is the picture God wants to portray to the lost to show what his family can look like. When he brings Jew and Gentile together, the world needs to see a family of people who are as difficult and weak and flawed as Peter, James, and John. They need to see a picture of people who are as different as Levi the tax collector, as Simon the zealot. They need to see a church, a people, a family 
who are made up of as common and ordinary and forgettable people as Bartholomew and Thaddeus, but who are united by the Holy Spirit, serving one another, pushing the mission forward together, no matter what kind of personal struggles or problems come their way. When people look at our family photo, if we took a family photo and we put it on our fireplace and people looked at it, what would they see? If, by God's grace, they see anything of Jesus in the midst of all our flaws and failures, it will be because of him. It will be because of his grace. Brothers and sisters, let us be united as disciples, ready to lay everything aside, our wants, our preferences, our plans, our hopes, our dreams, our agenda, our name, down at the altar and live for the name of Christ. live for his name so that he will get the credit. Let us pray.